Okay, so welcome everybody to the Gains Lab podcast. And today we're talking about what the sport of CrossFit is. And this is going to be part of a four-part series. We're going to start with definitions, talking about what the sport is from a variety of uh, different perspectives. We're going to go into foundations. What do you need to have accumulated in order to properly compete and train and express the sport? And then we're going to talk about seasons. And then we'll talk about expressions, examples of really high level expressions of the sport that humans have done. So today we're talking about definitions. So we're going we're gonna to start by defining what the sport is. And as a coach, the primary way that I think about that is in terms of contractions, because that is a high level of resolution in terms of what's happening in modalities and the dose. And so when we look at contractions and what contractions are happening inside the sport, the contractions are mostly dynamic. And all I mean by that is on a spectrum from slow contractions to fast, they are towards the fast end of the spectrum. So contractions are dynamic across the six major patterns, squat, bend, lunge, push, pull, core movements, and making those dynamic contractions across the six major patterns as sustainable as possible. That makes up about 85% of what the sport is. So if we look at a weekend competition, there's going to be seven of the eight events over three days will be that making dynamic contractions across the six major patterns as sustainable as possible. That eighth event is going to be one or a few tough strength speed, most often strength speed contractions. So the sport is mostly those dynamic contractions, six major patterns, making that sustainable. And then a few tough contractions sprinkled inside of that. As the sport is organized into weekend events, Right now, that's, that's what you get on the other end. And it's, it's changing frequently, but that applies to what most weekend competitions are. Any thoughts yeah, on that, Matt? No, that's, that's spot on. Um, you know, I've thought about this a lot of different ways, starting with my, my own training and then that of our athletes. And ultimately, you sort of, I think most coaches settle on physiology in the sense of like, there are a lot of different ways to talk about how to improve ring muscle ups or handstand walks or whatever, but there's a physiological basis for it. And we did some of that with physiological infrastructure. And now you're kind of coming at it from the point of view of um, dynamic contractions. It's just basically you're trying to get to like a foundational approach to athlete development. So you start with physiology and then you, or you, in your case with contractions, and you use that as your reference point for athlete development. That's what I, that's what it sounds like you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of times people look at the sport and coaches look at the sport or athletes look at the sport and it seems really chaotic, unknown and unknowable yeah. that uh, marketing line. So this is just an attempt at saying, okay, what is shared across all of these different events and all of yeah. these different tests 
what is common. You're a coach, so you think like a coach. And a coach is always thinking, how do I get the best performance I can from my athletes? And that often comes back to, you know, it's what knowledge to apply and when, but at a higher level, it's like you have so much time in a day to train. So if you have four hours to train because you're a full-time competitor, that's cool. But if we only need three hours to get that same result and you can recover for an extra hour over time, that's going to give you an advantage over every other athlete who has to do the full four. So you're, you're a coach is always asking the question, like, is this the highest value of this training time? If it's not, you're not a good coach or you're a coach who's just not experienced yet. But so that's, I think like another thing that's at the heart of this is like, okay, dynamic contractions or a different physiological perspective, or even like the energy systems, that model has its limitations, but it's, a, but it's an attempt at a physiological basis for what this is. So I like the dynamic contractions model. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we'll get into it more that definition will be the beacon when we talk about foundations and especially seasons, because we need to begin with the end in mind and know what it is that we're moving towards. Sure, absolutely. And so that definition provides, you start there and then that provides structure to the rest of the season and then the foundations that you need to even be able to do dynamic contractions. Right. And that's, I can take you back to 2012 when I started as a competitor. I'll make this a very short story. It looks like there's a daunting list of tasks at which one must become proficient. It's like all these schools in the open or the regionals. I did that a long time ago. I was like, oh my goodness, there's 86 things to do. I think it was really like 12 different tasks. And you start to look at that as a task list and go, I don't have enough time to get good at all 12 of these. And it's like, well, actually, there are some underlying motor patterns and some underlying physiological adaptations that can, that can compress that a little bit. And um, I think every, every serious athlete and coach go th- goes through that when they're like, what's the, what's the most efficient way to approach this, this galaxy of skills? And how do I condense this into higher value activities that, that will benefit more broadly? Right? So I hear a lot of that, too, which I think is the exact, uh, the exact right approach for a coach or an athlete to think about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's a lot that we could get into with that. I think that one common way of looking at the dose that you're getting for a CrossFit athlete is like, Oh, well we did. You look at the specific movements. Yes. So like, Oh, we did thrusters and pull-ups. How many thrusters have we done this month? How many pull-ups have we done this month? Are we accumulating enough volume in that movement? And that's, right. that can be a useful way of looking at what you're doing. You need, you need that level of specificity if, if the athlete is in, in seasons. So they're yeah. going in and out of competing and they can express functional volume in those movements. Like that's a useful thing to know. Like yep. We, yep. we don't need to do 100 ring muscle-ups. We need to do, depending on the level of the athlete, like the functional volume of 30, 40, 60, whatever, whatever their level is. Yeah. Right. So, so the movement specificity can be a useful way of looking at it, but it's also helpful to think about, okay, we have six patterns, right? So it's stepping away from it. And that way you can make a connection between, okay, what is a handstand pushup? What is a handstand walk? What is a burpee? Oh, those are pushing. Do we have the (coughs) scapular strength in the pushing pattern? 
right. measured by something like a close grip bench press or a yep. strict press yep. or a single arm dumbbell strict press yep. to actually express that stuff. And we'll get in, this is all foundations. We'll get into more detail with that, but both, both are useful. But you yeah. were talking about physiologically. So we will jump into that. And there's more in an article on our website where we talk about at the muscular level, recruitment and energetics and how those are at the muscular level, the two physiological parameters that affect muscle contraction performance in the sport. Well, yeah, that's just, yeah, well, go ahead. You, you, you can speak on that better than I can. No, I, I won't speak about it too much, but I, I sort of, as I grew as an athlete and coach and by growth, I mean, like did a lot of stuff wrong and then figured it out the second time. That's what I mean by growth. Um, I realized that for me, the easiest way to understand and frame athlete development was to look at this and go, okay, it's still, it's still muscles contracting. That's energy. That's muscle fiber recruitment. That's inputs to fatigue, like cellular pH and everything else. And, you know, uh, lactate accumulation and, and, and capillary blood supply and so on. And those kind of things were like, all right, this is the foundation that's built from there, but you're kind of, I don't want to say an alternative approach. You're offering, a a more athlete oriented approach with uh, dynamic contractions. But it, I think it's important for people to realize that it's, it's all supported by the same ideas. It's not like, Hey, I have a magic shortcut. That's going to make you better at double unders. If you just remember this cue, it's like, no, it's like there's an underlying physiology that governs human performance. And we're going to apply that to athlete development in the sport of fitness. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I would say that dynamic, looking at the contractions that are happening, whether it's dynamic or tough contractions, that's one perspective for looking at the sport. And we're going to get into a bunch of different perspectives of looking at the sport. There's a psychological perspective. There's a social perspective. Oh, yeah, of course. There's a biomechanical perspective. So uh, as far as the physiological perspective goes, we can actually, why don't we just leave it at that? You can go check out the article on our website. Yeah. It talks about recruitment and energetics, why both are important. One of my favorite sayings is if you can't do the moves, there's nothing to endure. Right. So you have to have the muscle or the, the muscle fibers, the motor units recruited in order to even endure anything <laughs> in yeah. uh, the recruited muscle fibers. Go check out that article on our website. If you're interested in the, at the muscular level, how we look at the sport. And there are obviously other systems that are involved. There's metabolic perturbations that you have to deal with. There's respiration is involved. There's the cardiovascular system is involved. But the reason that we emphasize the muscular system is because if you look at, again, it goes back to the contractions. And if you look at the six major patterns and the size of muscles that are contracting and the nature of the contractions, the, the tension that's involved, the what's happening at the muscular level, that recruitment and energetics piece, when you're doing a pistol squat, it contributes in my, in my view, in my, this is my take on the sport, that muscular lens helps you see much more clearly what is limiting the athlete rather than respiration or cardiovascular limitations. If you're, if you're looking at, the contractions that happen inside the sport. And I think just thinking about the example of a pistol squat and what it takes to make a pistol squat 
as sustainable as possible, do 150 of them yep. as, as, as efficiently and as sustainably and as fast as you can. Yes, you're going to be respirating. Yes, your heart is going to be pumping. Yes, there's going to be metabolic activity. But if you look at the muscular level, I just think that other stuff becomes peripheral. Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay. So moving on to biomechanics, what is the sport biomechanically? And now really every sport has an element of this, but I think it's especially apparent in CrossFit because the game is just as much as it is, how fast can you get this work done? A huge influence on how fast you get the work done is how efficient are you biomechanically? So uh, you can just think about the example of somebody who has a beautifully stacked overhead position versus somebody who has to really contract and struggle to get their arms over their head. And then you say, do 55 wall locks mm -hmm. as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one could have uh, that, that tight guy could have a bench press of 350 pounds and be super strong around his scaps. But if, if that other athlete is like, maybe has a bench press that's much lower, but is much more stacked overhead. Well, the wall lock is probably going to be a lot easier for that other athlete. So there are biomechanical uh, factors uh, in the sport and what is rewarded is efficiency. So it, it, a good orientation for an athlete is not, Oh, how can I, how can I just go harder and like dig deeper and, and tolerate more pain, but how can I make these wall walks easier for myself? And you see this when volume forces you into this mindset. If you've ever done a hundred reps of something in a time constrained environment with other tasks around it, you quickly find out what the most efficient way it is for you on that day to do that task. Mm -hmm. And so the, the volume sort of gives you that mindset. But if I think that's a good orientation for athletes that a biomechanical perspective on the sport gives us is focus on how you can make this easier and still accomplish the work that, that I think is a good orientation for athletes. Um, okay. No, I, I tend to agree with that because a lot of, I think we talked about this in a, a past conversation, maybe we recorded it, maybe we didn't, but my, I always come back to the first muscle up as the reference point for this. The first muscle up is always, uh, is almost always an exercise in an athlete doing an enormous swing on the rings, pulling as hard as they can. And for the first time, managing to catch themselves on top of the rings. And then like, because they've caught themselves at the lowest possible position that their shoulders and elbows will allow them to be in, they then have to push out of a dip that's extremely mechanically disadvantageous. When this happens, and again, this happened in my gym, so I, I'm, I'm extrapolating, but I've seen it before. When this happens, everybody's really happy. And that athlete's friends usually support them while they do that because our community is good for that. So everybody cheers them on. Oh, Paul, you got your first muscle up. There isn't anybody in the gym, including me, I wouldn't do this to say, well, that was some really terrible biomechanics. Like you just, that wasn't good. You shouldn't be doing that. The only person cheering is your orthopedic surgeon. 
right? Like we we celebrate, and, and I'm not being overly funny. Like that act of crashing on top of the rings to catch yourself in a muscle up is extremely stressful. Extremely, like you're 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 up over the rings now. You're falling now. You catch yourself. Your shoulders aren't really designed for that. Not meant to hang in that you know, supported by your, your pec minors and, and your rotator cuff, not really what they're for. I've done it. So I'm, I'm not poking fun at people without first poking it at myself. I've done a million muscle ups this way. Before somebody said like, hey, you're supposed to press out as soon as you get over the top. Oh, oh, that's much easier. So that's my example of like inefficient biomechanics. And in 2013, somebody correct me on this if I'm wrong. There was an open workout that was like a whole bunch of double unders a whole bunch of wall balls, and then as many muscle-ups as you can do. And a few real, like, CrossFit beasts did all 30 ring muscle-ups. And you had to be, like, Rich Froning or, like, that level to get through them all, get back around to the first round. People did it. It's like, oh, my God, they got all the way through? I think I did maybe seven muscle-ups. And I did all seven in the manner I just described. Now, I was happy with that because it was 2013, and it's the first time I, you know, learned muscle-ups a week before that. But biomechanically... A coach should have said, hey, cool, write your name on the board. Now, never do that again until we work on these other five things. But that didn't happen. And I continued to do inefficient muscle-ups for years until eventually. So the problem with doing something inefficiently is you won't, of your own accord, become more efficient. You'll get better at doing something badly, if that makes sense. So I got like good at doing muscle-ups poorly. Okay. That's not a good outcome. I could go, well, I did a set of nine. Yeah, they all suck. <laughs> okay, like if I could do it efficiently, it would be a set of 17 at the same energy level. And I think that's the mm-hmm. point you're making. That is the point that, you're making, yeah. Like, it's not like, oh, be good so the reps look pretty. Like, that's, that's an added bonus. You put them on social media, people go, wow, that guy, Matt, moves really well. No one's ever done that, by the way, about me, unless there was a barbell involved. <laughs> then, yes. But gymnastics no and so that's the point is like when you're doing it correctly you're more efficient so the energy used is less and therefore your capacity is higher because you can do more reps sustainably so that's i think that's the point you're trying to make and that's my my real world experience and i think muscle ups is a great example and if i could just sum all this up you want every muscle that you use to contribute but you only want to use muscles that contribute so like all those kicks and other things people do on muscle-ups, unimportant, wasted energy. Don't do that. And you see that everywhere. Double unders, one arm out to the side and, you know, things that are like inefficient, that's wasted energy. We used to call that like leaking energy. It's like I want to – I have a hose that I water the lawn with, right? If the hose has a hole in it, all the water comes out of the house, but only half of it gets to the lawn, I can do analogies all day, but that's kind of, that's what's going on here, right? You're doing all the energy. You're consuming the fuel. You're doing the glycolytic byproducts. You're lowering the pH, but you're not getting the outcome in the workout that you want. That's the biomechanical aspect of it, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That's yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I just think about like you can, who was the bodybuilder who just did isometric contractions in his door frame? I know, I, I know, the you know, story. you know, the story that I'm referring to, right. He became a, 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 yeah, like a renowned bodybuilder with 
with just really tough isometrics that he could do around his house. I was mentally tougher than I am. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And so you can do lots of work as far as the contraction and, you know, create all these waste products and create all this fatigue and mm-hmm. not accomplish work as CrossFit defines it. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So biomechanics. So that's important. And that's, that's, I think sometimes as coaches, we focus way too much on that. And it's like, wow, I like the biomechanics, your biomechanics need to be perfect. Like it's a ring muscle, up. it's super complex. And it's like, well, um, you know, there, there are other ways to become competent as a coach and, and become competent as an athlete. And, and there are some athletes who defy biomechanics. Yeah, but not too so, many. You're right. Not, not too many. Not too many. Yeah. It's, it is important. I just think that, yeah, without going too, too, much, too much further in depth, it, the example is, um, you know, you do a snatch and you analyze the video for five minutes. Right before doing your next snatch, it's like, well, how many, just practice more. How many, how many practice reps are you not doing because you're sitting reviewing it on your phone? Not that that's bad, but it, you can get too far down into the biomechanics and not be, be thinking so much and not be doing. So yep. that, that's all I'm trying to say. I'm good. Okay. So moving on psychologically, what is the sport? Just one thing that I want to emphasize as far as defining the sport psychologically is that it is a pain sport and anyone who's done the open anybody who anybody who's done the open for multiple years knows what i mean when i say that and there are endurance authors who come from that world who have done a lot of interesting study on endurance athletes and drawing out what the commonalities are across successful endurance athletes. And what I think is important to, I guess what I would pass on to our audience, if you're an athlete and you want to compete in the sport is you need to have a really high value for what you're doing. And that often grows out of a void, some sort of void in your life. And, and I think, I'll, I think I'll, that's sufficient. I'll just leave it at that and I'll pass it on to you, Matt. Um, but, but noticing what the voids are in your life and how values grow out of that so that you're really connected to why you're doing what you're doing and you can push into, into pain and perceive less discomfort than somebody you're you're trying to be this kind of reminds me of a funny story i went to a seminar it's i've been to so many of these things i don't remember who or where but i remember one nugget from it one of the coaches was talking about internal versus external motivation internal motivation being something like i want to be the best so everybody knows that matthew webke is the best and then their point was like then you have the weightlifter from north korea who's like if i don't make these lifts my family loses their house like who do you think is going to train harder So that stuck with me, obviously, as like an extreme example of me, like first world problems guy. It doesn't matter if I make these lifts or not. I don't do this for a living. You know, I'm a middle-aged guy with a college degree who was an officer in the army. Like I can make a living. 
and this like the the extreme example of someone who like an authoritarian government has lifted up into prominence don't make them look stupid it's a whole different level so like wherever your motivation comes from it's usually a combination of internal and external willingness to suffer in training i think any successful athlete in any sport has that i agree with you like the, the pain sport characterization is 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 accurate in the sense of if you watch a baseball player you know after a game they hit two home runs and they're they're being interviewed they never say things like well i went to the dark place and just had to suffer through it in the baseball like that's not what that's not what they do it's not you know it's not what basketball is like well we you know what do they say like we made plays we executed the game plan and our coaches had us ready to go and we made a big play and we came out on top and you know a lot of credit to those other guys because most sports aren't endurance or a uh, pain and suffering type of things endurance sports a little bit but that's they're so monostructural literally that I don't like to apply too much of to those teachings here the other thing I'll say about competition itself I've done a lot of them uh local throwdowns all the way up to the games and the regionals and the waterpalooza and all that stuff competition is always humbling and always stressful because you always lose unless you're like Matt Fraser or Tia, but guess what? Like, I don't personally know them. I've chatted with both of them, but the pressure to always win is higher for them. Like if you're Matt or Tia, again, I've never been these people, but you're supposed to win. So if you don't, like, that's a lot of pressure. Whereas the other athletes are like, I'm going to do the best I can. I train super hard for this, but it helps if you're going to compete to go into competition of like, all right, do the best I can train, you know, I work very hard for this. I'm going to leave it all on the floor. I hate those cliches, but it's really true in CrossFit. And then like, I'm not going to get demoralized by finishing, you know, not where I wanted to, because you're going to see things that blow you away. First big competition I did in Florida, 2013, one rep max clean and jerk. I think I hit like 315. It's 2013. Okay. That's a lot in 2013. 315, super proud of it. 19th place. How is this 19th place? How are there 18 guys who lifted more than this? Then I watched the final heat and a guy did a 335 power clean and power jerk. And that guy's actually a pretty well-known dude on Instagram. I don't want to say who it is, but um, he did that. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like he could go another hundred pounds. He did go another 30 pounds and won the event. I was like, oh, I'm not even close to that. Like competition is very humbling. And if I would have walked away from there, like, man, I, I got to stop doing this because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm never going to power jerk 365. I would have missed out on a lot of cool experiences. So I think like being able to accept that sometimes you're going you're gonna to get your uh, expectations reset in a hurry, very viscerally. If you can't do that, if you can't have that mindset, you're going to have a short competing career. And this is, you know, obviously the people who compete recreationally do it into your 80s. But if you're, if you're competing to try to win, just understand that sometimes everybody else also is. And you're going to come face to face with people who are a lot better than you, maybe not overall, but at specific things that you never saw that coming. It's like, wow, I got to get my strength levels up. Like, no, I don't. Like 315 is good. I'm 38 years old. Like that's not going to 325 is going to take a year. It's not the right place to put my priorities. Live with a 315 clean and jerk. You'll kill it in masters. Go work on other stuff. And like competition is super, super humbling. And if you can't accept that, you're not going to compete very long. So, and I, like I said, for those couple athletes at the top, man, it must be nice. But um, the pressure to have to win every time is 
probably a lot. <laughs> like I just have to go out there and compete and do my best. If I don't win, no one expect me to win. You know, it's like, all right, well, you can wait to the CrossFit games. You finished 13th, like no one cares. But if Matt Frazier would have finished 13th, like we people would still be talking about it. You know, so. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So it, it's, competition is super humbling and it can be humbling across the board. Like, wow, I'm not as fit as I thought I was. And it can be like, did that guy just do 30 muscle-ups in a row? Man, I did 13. Like, that kind of stuff will just blow your mind. So if you're not prepared to have your mind blown frequently in competition, don't compete. Don't do it because you're going to just get frustrated and burn out. I, I can't do this. And you've seen athletes do that. I've seen athletes do that. Cool. Just be fit. Just, like, look good, feel good. You know, just work out hard, train, have fun, hang out with your friends. But don't try to go to the semifinals. Because the path to get there is going to involve you being just having your expectations set down again and again and again until you push back against that. And it, that, that's a huge psychological thing too, because it's basically, again, I, I don't know if people are going to want to work with us anymore after this, but going to a competition is like everybody there is to, everyone is there to tell you how much you suck. <laughs> like, Hey, Matt Webke, you're in lane seven. Like here's 20 other guys who are trying to be like, you're the worst one here. You know, they're, they're trying to tell you that you stink. So be prepared for that and understand that you have a role in telling them that they stink too. You know? So like yeah, that's, yeah. That's, when you do it enough, you start to see that. It's like, wait a minute, this is 30 clean and drugs for time. I'm going to win this. You all stink. So it's when you can have the right perspective about it, it gets fun, but yes, like it's very humbling. So accept that and embrace it. Yeah, that's good. I love that. Competition is a source of truth. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. As somebody yeah. who really loves building and loves the athletic development process has a really high value for that, I've avoided competitions in the past mm-hmm. because I didn't want to access the truth that it right. that was inside of right. me. And so right. yeah, that's my that's something that I like to pass on to like, you know, the proverbial next generation of athletes is you need to compete because you need to confront what the truth is. And, yeah. and sometimes the truth is painful. No, oh, I can tell you a guy who competed a lot. It's always painful. And like, I made it to the CrossFit games. It was still painful. It's like, how, how did I do? How did 14 people? What? Yeah. Well, never- and, and I would say too, that if you lose that sense of, of the truth being painful, even, even Fraser, when he was winning every event at regionals, yeah. he, he would be upset with himself for the one that he got second in. Sure, sure, sure. sure he sure. he would be like, I could have gone faster on that event, even though even though he won the event in the world, like no one in the world. Yeah, right, 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 right. So that just like relentlessly seeking out the light and the truth that comes from competition, I think that's I think that's a virtue as an athlete. That's oh, really- I think so too. I just I'll, I'll shut up after this. In order to do that without resenting everything about the world go in there prepared that like the truth isn't always what you want to hear and competition, like, yo, almost everybody loses. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like in all those five years that like Matt won it or whatever, five years, there were like 200 games athletes who didn't. So 200 losers. Right. And like, you wouldn't look at those guys, like they're super fit, way fitter than I'll ever be 200 losers. So when you see it that you have to, that's, quest for the truth involves hearing things that you know the truth always isn't, isn't always the nicest thing to hear that's all 
Yeah, no, that's good. Okay, so moving on to spiritually, what the sport is. And all I mean by spiritually is meaning. So what is the meaning in the sport? And the sport is seeking a temporary expression of maximum human physical potential across a variety of disciplines. Now, one of those disciplines or I would say a number of those disciplines are unique to CrossFit. But there's also resemblances of Olympic gymnastics, resemblances of the sport of weightlifting, resemblances of endurance sport. So that I think is what's inspiring about the sport, what's meaningful to the sport. There's a lot more that we could talk about, but it's a temporary maximum human expression. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Um, I think I, as I, I'm, you know, a little older than you and um, kind of looking back on competing more than I'm looking forward to it, although I still compete against myself and I tell myself the truth every day, uh, which is that I stink. Um, but I look at it as like, that was a time in my life where I really wanted to push myself in a certain direction for a, for a period of years. There are guys in my age group, again, I did the games like five years ago. There are people in my age group who still compete, still go to the games. And I think that's awesome. I have nothing but respect for that. But I can look back and say like, this is like a, a chapter in my life where I, where I expressed like the highest level of fitness and performance I could. And I, I really, I don't know if it's spiritual or not, or if it's just mental and emotional, but like I wanted to see what I could do with that time and see how far I could take it and like challenge myself to continue to grow. And it wasn't about winning prize money. Like that wasn't the primary motivation. I think I won a total of about $5,000 competing series of local throwdowns. Um, I, I actually won one fairly big one. I think I won a thousand bucks, but like not much, you know, it, it, it wasn't making a living per se. It was like competition is, is raw and it's, it's visceral and it's objective. So it's not like, Maybe you get promoted at work. Maybe you don't. Were you the best worker to the boss like you? Did you go to the right school? I, I, competition doesn't care about any of that. So I knew I could be like, yo, this barbell weighs 315. If I could put it over my head, like I win, you know, like it was very, it was very objective. And, and I think part of my motivation to do this, and I don't know if other athletes feel this too, was like, this is me against me. Like it's always you against you in, in you know, sports and athletics. It's always you against you because if you're willing to do the work, you'll get the result right up to the, the limits of your potential. So I think I was kind of embracing the you against you nature of it. And I was sort of happy to find that in my 30s when most of my athletic days were sort of behind me. It was kind of nice to rediscover that sense of like, you know what? Like it's me against me. Everyone's doing the same challenge, but my desire to do it is such that I'll get there faster than you guy in the next lane. Or I won't, and I'll get humbled like I talked about five minutes ago. But at least I know it will, it will have been an objective measurement rather than like, well, I interviewed for that job. And I should have got, you know, the world's crazy like that. But if I did the 30 clean and jerks in a certain time and you did it another time, we know who did it faster. We know who has more work capacity. We know who's stronger, you know, whatever. So for me, it was like, I just want an objective test that I can prepare for and, and, and test myself on. And I can look back and say, all right, I really did it. And that was cool. So for me, that was sort of the, again, I don't know if that's spiritual, but I, I think it is because it was like, I'm, I'm like defining myself against the universe. So, in, you know, my own small way. So that was, that's kind of how I thought about that, you know, as well. 
Yeah, I think you, you bring up a really good point, which is that where I derived meaning in the sport is maximum human potential. So if you're not the Usain Bolt of CrossFit, then you're not expressing the maximum, right? Only Fraser right. and Toomey are expressing the maximum. Right, 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 right. Maduros yeah. or whoever. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you're still choosing to participate in it, yeah. then there is a lot of meaning to be gained and fulfillment to be gained from the experiences that you have inside of it and the growth that you experience yeah. through those experiences. Yeah. So that you experienced it, the growth that you, right. Uh, the ways you grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Through those experiences, like you, uh, that can be of, of enormous benefit and fulfillment and meaning to, to a person. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I can look back on what I did and be like that chapter of my life was very satisfying. And then I'm kind of into the coaching chapter now where satisfaction comes from, you know, positive feedback. Hey, I did this program and I improved this thing. Like, awesome. You know, I, I get a lot of satisfaction from like some thoughts that we put to paper were helpful for an athlete to achieve their goals. It's like, you have the desire. I handed you a couple of tools. It worked, right? It's a certain, it's a little bit of a different kind of satisfaction knowing that like the experiences I had, and you had and the, the lessons we learned along the way are now like part of the, the long links in the chain of fitness. So like, spiritual side there's always an essence to like what do you leave behind so in this sport like we left behind a couple of interesting programming ideas that people still follow that's kind of cool because i came to the sport using a couple interesting programming ideas that other people did now I, I would read like these names i'll say like dan john just like was, was great at taking simple ideas or taking complex ideas and expressing them in very simple ways or like um dave tate i've learned more about a deadlift in a 15 minute Dave Tate video than I have anywhere else. And like, these are the guys I listened to 20 years ago because they were kind of the only guys I knew about. So their impact, you know, lasts decades in the future. And if we're able to do that in some small way, that'd be very, you know, satisfying to leave that behind. Then an athlete goes, Hey, I signed up for a year of the engine and it's really cool. Like, okay. That's, that's like bigger than me or you. That's like that. Now there's other people doing it. So I'm trying to find some, 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 uh, satisfaction that way yeah yeah that's good that's really good uh well there's one more that we could talk about and that's what is the sport socially and i would say socially the sport is a celebration of that human potential and the growth if you're not at the maximal level of potential obviously it's worthwhile and worthy for lots of people to participate in the sport, even if you're not at the human maximum. But so the sport is a celebration of that maximum human potential. That's why everyone goes and they watch the RX or the elite athletes, because that's the maximum. That's what humans can do mm-hmm. in this context. Yeah. It's also a celebration of the growth that happens at the submaximal levels and just the, the experiences that lead to that. And I think there's some glorification of the human body aesthetically and what it can, what it can be. Now, obviously bodybuilding is, is, has a higher value for that than CrossFit. But I think that that's, that's still an aspect of the sport without applying any uh, value or, or judgment to that. That's always context specific, right? Because that's like bodybuilders aesthetically and like, glorification of the human body 
find in their audiences other aspiring bodybuilders, whereas CrossFitters find in their audience other aspiring CrossFitters. And you could say like social media creates a desire for, you know, attractive people to post things. Sure, that's as old as time itself. Since the invention of the camera, that's been true. Um, but it's, it's the human body aspect of it is, I think, universal to people. They always want to look at other nice looking people. But I think it's also context specific in the sense of like, that's an apex CrossFit performer. Like I do that stuff in the gym, but that's what it looks like when it's, you know, in lane five in the last heat. So I, I think that's part of it. And then uh, to me, I think the real, like the real, like primal attraction to sports is not the appearance of the people. It's watching someone be better than they were last time. Like, Tia Toomey going second. And I think Matt did this too. Second place, second place. Now they're first. Like that that journey was more compelling than like, again, this is subjective. So maybe somebody disagrees. But to me, it was more compelling than like Matt Frazier and Tia Toomey destroy the field again. Like the one year with the Corona when there were only five athletes, like good for HQ for doing that. But it wasn't interesting. Mm-hmm. It was like Matt won every event. It was only five guys. So it wasn't like, oh, we're going to see Sam Dancer do the deadlift. He wasn't there. Like, it was only five guys. So if you can beat him in three events, you can beat him in 30 events. Like, once you start beating these people, they're not going to, like, start, you know, beat you with other stuff. It's the same. Like, it's the the field is too small. So that wasn't, again, from a social side and from an athlete overcoming a challenge standpoint, there was no challenge there. Because it was over on the first day. It's always over on the first day. No, it was really over on the first day. And seeing those guys go from like second, you know, or, or um, probably the best, the best CrossFit watching ever was Ben Smith versus Matt Frazier in 2015. Last event, right? And like everybody has their own opinion on these guys. I'm not going to add mine, but like everybody picked a side. It's like you either want to see like Ben who started when he was you know 10 years old and was like there from the beginning or this new guy that's kind of rough around the edges and like lost to Rich last year. And is this his year? Like that was the most compelling viewing that I, I've watched every CrossFit game since the beginning. I still think that was the best, the best event but mm-hmm. with the heavy kettlebells and the, mm-hmm. so like that's the social side is, is like, you want to, everybody's glued to that and you're watching to see if this person can overcome what they were in the past. Yeah. And Ben did that day. And next year, Matt was like, that's, I'm overcoming now and no one's ever going to beat me again. But that, that story is like what we gravitate to. That's the social side of it. Mm, yeah. it's like, it's like that triumph over, over their past self. It's like, can, can, can Matt learn the lesson? No, he finished second again. Can he learn it this time? Oh, yeah, he learned it now. Right? And then like, <laughs> is he ever going to let anyone else? Like, you know, that's what we're really attracted to. And then everything social is kind of derivative of that, like athlete overcoming their past self. Yeah, that's a really interesting take. So even at the highest level, the human growth aspect is huge. Oh, and I mean, it's, it, it's, it's easier at a lower level because you progress so much faster. So it's like, right. you know, I was 80,000th place in the open. I trained real seriously. And now I'm 8,000th place. Like, wow, if I keep going at this pace, I'll soon be the 10-time champion. Like, no, you won't. Because you, you get, you, it gets harder. <laughs> but it's most compelling at the top level. Like no one really cares that like Matt Webke did his 10th muscle. Who cares? No one cares. You know, it's not good TV. It's not compelling because a lot of people can do that. But, but when you see the, the top people at the, the, the limit of their potential going, okay, I have to, how do I take that next step? To me, that's like, that's what pulls people in. 
it's the same reason that like three quarters of a football game can be boring, but like the two minute drill in the fourth quarter is the only thing worth watching. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. why is this interesting? Like everybody knows what Tom Brady's trying to do. The defense knows the offense knows, is he going to overcome this challenge or not? Yeah. That's it's the same thing, you know, in all sports. It's like, can the athlete overcome that? And to me, I think that's what the draw is the social side of it of like, Hey, high five. Or like, you know, let's go tailgate this game. It's all downstream from, is this high level performer going to overcome themselves? Yeah. That's super philosophical, man. Sorry to kill the whole podcast. No, that's... no. Yeah. We've been super <laughs> philosophical. I love that. No, the, as the, the, why people gravitate towards sport yeah. and why it's so captivating is it's humans taking aim and hitting the mark in something. Yes. And that, yeah, I love that. I love talking about this stuff. So, so that was definitions. We define the sport in a bunch of different ways from a bunch, bunch of different perspectives in the next pod we'll talk about foundations so if you want to do this you want to express the sport appropriately what do you need to be able to do what what are the prerequisites what do you need to have accumulated and how do you get to a point where you can play cool